0: Now let me give you a welcome too to the conference, it's good to see you, even those who are standing at the back, it's good to see you too. Um, let's turn for our first reading please to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The subject is the judgment seat of Christ, and the subject for this session is Integrity. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, let's read from verse number 9. Wherefore we labour that whether present or absent we may be accepted of him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest, excuse me, made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. For we commend not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory in our behalf, that ye may have somewhat to answer them which glory in appearance and not in heart. For whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God, or whether we be sober, It is for your cause. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then were all dead, and that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. And that will do for our reading. We trust the Lord will bless it to us as we spend some time together in this and in the following sessions. There is part of that uh, reading, which I think is a very sobering statement whenever you read it, and it's this, that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. You have that in chapter 5 and verse number 10. I don't think that for a Christian there can be any more sobering reality than that. One day when perhaps we least expect it, This is going to happen. The Lord Jesus will come back again and every true believer, every believer in this room will instantly find themselves changed and in the presence of the Lord Jesus. Earthly life will abruptly come to an end. And with that earthly service as we know it, in our present condition for the Lord, is done, is finished. And so, although we look ahead to what that brings in, we also need to be aware of what that will come, will bring to an end, what that will stop. So, too late to witness to those that you intended to witness to. Too late to start and too late to stop. All of that's done. Good intentions to pray more, to give more, to read the Bible more, to witness more, to sin less, done. And the trumpet is sounded and earthly life is done. It's finished. And our understanding of our New Testament would lead us to this conclusion that that event could happen at any time. The Lord Jesus Christ has promised that he's coming back. He's coming back to reign upon the earth, that is true. But prior to that, he is coming back, not to the earth, but to the sky, to rapture, to call to himself, Christians who are still on earth, alive and serving, And the dead in Christ will be raised and those alive and remain will be caught up, according to Paul's teaching in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Thereafter, one of the things that we are going to be involved in with the Lord is this judgment seat. The judgment seat of Christ or of God as it is in one of the readings. And we're going to see, as we go through these sessions, that that ought to be a motivating factor in service presently, that we will, as servants to our Lord, give an account of our service to him. Makes sense, doesn't it? There will be accountability in service, not to each other, but to the one to whom we serve, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this idea of an assessment of service we're going to see is what's involved in the judgment seat of Christ. And so we give an account, we'll see, for our service rendered on earth. And it's interesting that this is not the sort of assessment that you can cram for or you can wing. I've done my fair share of that over time with exams and all that kind of thing, and This is more a kind of continuous assessment. And so we are actually, at the moment, we are rendering our service as we go day by day. And it's been rendered to the Lord, and the assessment of that will be given in a coming day. So it's not that you'll get an opportunity to gather up the good bits of your life and service and kind of forget the not-so-good bits and package it in such a way that it's going to be advantageous to you and present it to the Lord like a dissertation. It's not that idea at all. The service is being rendered and the assessment will be made in that coming day. And that, I think, is a sobering thought. It should be for all of us. Now, I've said that after the rapture of First Thessalonians chapter 4, this will take place. I can't just say that. I surely need to show it to you from the Bible because that's how you're meant to do things. And it's evident that Paul's teaching when he writes his first letter to Corinth, the first epistle, he, he writes about this. And he's speaking at the beginning in chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians about this idea of service and of assessment and judging. And he was pointing out that it wasn't the, the place or the right, it wasn't appropriate for our service for the Lord to be judged by each other, nor even to be judged here upon earth. You get that in 1 Corinthians chapter Four. He even says that he doesn't feel himself to be qualified to make an assessment of his own service. And during that passage, he says this in verse 4 and 5 of 1 Corinthians 4, I know nothing by myself, yet am I not hereby justified. So he's saying, I actually honestly can't see within myself that which is unworthy in relation to the Lord Jesus. But he said, I am not qualified to make that assessment. But he that judgeth me is the Lord, he says, therefore judge nothing before the time. When's that? Until the Lord come. Who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the heart. And then shall every man have praise of God. And so Paul teaches the Corinthians that there is a time for assessment of service is just not now and in any event it's not up for us as fellow servants with each other to assess each other's service that's a matter for the Lord for him alone and then there's another section which is appropriate when thinking about when this will take place and it's in Revelation chapter 19. And there it's speaking about the Lord Jesus coming and he's appearing at the close of the tribulation period. So you have the rapture, you have the return of the Lord Jesus to the sky, you have the rapture of the saints from the earth, you have the tribulation period that runs thereafter. And then at the close of that tribulation period, in Revelation chapter 19, you have the return of the Lord Jesus Christ with his saints to establish his kingdom upon earth. And in verse number eight of Revelation 19, it says this, let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of the lamb is come and his wife hath made herself ready and to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And that word righteousness is plural according to the New King James And the idea is just this, it is the righteous acts of the saints. Those elements of the believers' lives, of your life and mine, which have been tried and assessed and found acceptable to God. And the bride of Christ adorns herself in her triumphal march, if you like, to that marriage banquet, and she's clothed in the rewards granted to her at the judgment seat of Christ. So you find this, the teaching of First Thessalonians chapter 4, and the teaching of Revelation 19, in between that teaching, you have the event during the day of Christ in glory of the judgment seat of Christ. That's when it takes place. That's where it takes place. So what is it? Well, before we get to the details here in chapter five, let me give you a kind of overview. What is the judgment seat of Christ? The Greek word is bima. You don't listen to ministry in this for very long before you hear that word, the bima. And people use it as if we're meant to know what it means. We don't know what it means, but it does mean the judgment seat. And this idea was very familiar to the people of Corinth. They wouldn't have required an explanation as to the imagery involved in this word. It was usually a raised platform Mounted a bit like this, I suppose, with steps coming up to it. Nice new platform. And public pronouncements were made from this, usually of a judicial nature. And someone, not necessarily, it could be a social announcement. Uh, For example, in the Grecian Games, announcements were made from the judgment seat prizes were given, public pronouncements were made, and so forth. You have it in the New Testament, often in relation to judicial pronouncements. A judge making those pronouncements. For example, Pilate, he sat on that judgment seat when he made pronouncements in relation to the Lord Jesus. Herod in Acts chapter 12, Galileo in Acts chapter 18, and Paul to Festus as well in Acts chapter 25. So you've got this idea of a raised platform and you've got an authority, a figure of authority making pronouncements on the person standing before them awarding prizes, making assessments, if you like, sometimes judicial, sometimes social or athletic. So what is the judgment seat of Christ then, if that's the imagery? We are appearing before this uh, deus, if you like, the authority person is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is taking place in heaven before the Lord Jesus Our believers, you and I. And pronouncement is being made upon us by the Lord Jesus himself. So what is this about? It's called the judgment seat of Christ. So the question is, what sort of judgment is being made upon us? Well, it's evident that the the object that is being judged are our works. We'll come across that as we look through the day. Salvation is clearly not in question. If salvation was in question, you wouldn't be before the judgment seat of Christ. You would have been raptured to the glory. Salvation has got nothing to do with works. We know that because Paul taught that in Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We understand as well from Paul's teaching, particularly, that justification, that is the judicial declaration in relation to my sin has already been made, and it's irreversible. Paul taught that and culminated in the end of Romans chapter 8 with that conclusion. And the supreme authority, judicial authority in all of God's universe has made his declaration in relation to our condition, in relation to sin, and we've been declared righteous by the highest judicial authority that is, which is God. He justified, therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. So there is no guilt, there is no sin anymore. It's been dealt with once and for all, irreversibly at salvation. What a marvel it is. We're thinking about that already in our introduction. What a marvel it is to know that all's well for eternity and that nothing that happens upon earth from the point of true conversion can reverse that declaration of justification. No condemnation. And so we're not talking about our salvation and we're not talking about our redemption. We're not talking about justification in that sense. So what are we talking about then as we appear before the judgment seat of Christ? It is the assessment of our service as those who are servants to our Lord Jesus Christ we are going to be assessed. And this issue of the judgment seat of Christ is connected to the issue of reward. It's connected to the issue of loss. We're going to think about that. And John says this in 1 John 2, verse 8. Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. So the judgment seat's not about the forgiveness or otherwise of sin it's not that's all dealt with and the judgment seat of Christ is to do with service and its assessment and the giving of reward you know when you think about reward sometimes that makes you a bit uncomfortable you think that you've that's a kind of lesser thing a lesser reason for service And this concept of reward sometimes feels a bit self-serving, a bit selfish. It's not altruistic enough. But the Bible speaks so much about it as a motivating factor in our service. And it's not just in the New Testament. Remember this, in Hebrews 11, verse 26, Moses was motivated by reward. It says he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. And so he's serving the Lord, and he's looking forward to the reward that God promises to those who serve him faithfully. He's looking forward to that. It's not a secondary sort of issue. It's not a kind of poor reason for serving. Again, we have that in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And the issue is faithfulness in service, we're going to see. And this whole idea when you come to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 of running the race and the athletic metaphor that you have, you shouldn't push that beyond the reason for which it's given. We're not competing against one another um, at all. We are running, we're seeking the prize, and sometimes we push the metaphor beyond the reason for which it's actually given as an illustration. So we're not striving to defeat each other, to be the sole victor in the race, but rather this, we're striving to please the Lord Jesus, the one that we serve. And crowns are given for those that do so. So that's a kind of introduction, introduction to the whole idea of the judgment seat of Christ. We're going to dig into it in three little sections. And we're thinking about integrity, first of all. So we have the concept that every single believer in this room, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And there is that day without being overly emotive about it, there is a day coming when you and I are going to be subject to divine scrutiny. And that ought to cause us just to have a little pause thought, subject to divine scrutiny. So we come into 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and our section in this session. Now I think when you get the overall context in which this is found, it's helpful. This is part of the flow of thought through these chapters, chapter 4 through into chapter 5. And if you're reading through these sections, you will have gained an impression, particularly from chapter four, that he's speaking about not giving up or, as it is in the authorised version, not fainting. And that occurs again and again in that, in that chapter. So he's, he's talking about the need to keep on going in service for the Lord Jesus Christ. Despite all that you'll experience, there is so much ahead of us to encourage us in our present service for the Lord. And the trials are not just to be endured without any significant meaning or purpose. In verse 16 and verse 17, he speaks about that very thing. For which cause we faint not. But though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. So you see the concept. He's speaking about that which lies ahead as an incentive for present endurance of difficult circumstances. He's saying what you are going through now is actually significant for what you will receive in that day. It's not meaningless. It's not nothing. It's not insignificant. And God calls us to go through difficult experiences in life and the the way that we go through these things, the things that we learn, the way that we serve, the way we conduct ourselves, what we learn from these things has an eternal consequence. And that separates, by the way, Christian suffering from any other suffering on earth. Not that it is any less or more, but this, it has an eternal significance. It matters. It's not nothing. And if you are going through periods of suffering in your life, whatever it may be, this is what Paul speaks about to encourage the saints, that there is reward and there is recompense and there is eternal significance for the way that we serve and the difficulties we experience for the Lord. And it's a motivating factor to keep on going. It's a motivating factor to face the difficulties in a certain way. Because it matters, and there is eternal significance. Then when you get into chapter 5, you discover this, that he then goes to the worst-case scenario, if you like, which is death itself. And he speaks about that in the anticipation of it himself, and he's weighing up this worst-case scenario, and he's putting into an eternal perspective. Again, he speaks about death, and he speaks about how he sees it from a spiritual perspective, the advantages and the disadvantages of it so-called. He speaks about being absent from the Lord, present here, or being absent from here and present with the Lord. And he speaks about his preference, which is to be with the Lord, but he understands the necessity of his present ministry on earth for the saints. That's the context. So he's thinking about things that lie ahead and their impact upon present service for the Lord now. That's the idea. And that's the direct context of what we've read with relation or related to the judgment seat of Christ. So he says this in verse number nine as we come into the little section. He says, wherefore, wherefore, we labor, and here it is, whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. Here's his ambition, having said all that he has said, having compared the eternal with the temporal, having thought about service now and difficulties in light of reward and eternity and the incentive of that for him. Here he says, listen, he says, taking all of that into account, we Labour. Young's literal translation, which is often helpful, says this, wherefore also we are ambitious. And that just seems to to really uh, express it very well. Paul says, taking into account all of this, we are ambitious. Ambitious. It means actually to love what is honourable. That's the literal translation, apparently. And Paul is speaking about ambition, which is noble, which is good. It's like a passion for excellence. And he says, within me, I have an ambition. I have that that motivates me, that drives me on in my service for the Lord. I have a yearning for something. And it's compelling. And it is this that I might be accepted of him. Paul is looking at his service in terms of his relationship with his Lord and the response of the Lord to him in his service. He wants to be accepted of him. His eye is upon his Lord. That in itself is significant. For whom do you render service? Who or what person is your eye upon as you serve? He says, I am ambitious. We labor that whether here or absent, and I think he's referring back to the beginning of chapter five, we may be accepted of him. That is to be pleasing to him. What a simple statement but what a significant statement. You know, when you think about that in your own service, who are you aiming to please? Think about that. Who are you aiming to please? Is it the Lord himself, or is it so many other people other than him? What will satisfy you? Is it the pleasure of other people, the affirming, the approval, etc., of other people, which is good and good in itself, but is it something much better than that? Is it actually the pleasure of the Lord Jesus Christ that is the primary ambition in your life and service for him? To be honest, for me, rarely rarely, that's the truth, yeah I would say it but really is it in my heart, I'm not sure I could honestly stand here and say that but what a challenge to me, what a challenge to you, get our eye upon the Lord, get our focus upon him, it will make our decision making perhaps a bit different in service, when our eyes upon him, when we seek to please him and our ultimate is him, not anyone else, not anything else, but our Savior. And so he says, that's my ambition. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 4, when he was talking about this kind of thing in different contexts, he actually said this. He said, but with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you. Now, he's, he's thinking of these Corinthians who were so quick to criticize him unjustly actually because as usual criticism usually is not fully informed assessment it has all sorts of bias and lack of information usually criticism does can't even read motivation never mind action properly and so Paul was subject to intense criticism now you think if Paul had yielded to that criticism and his eye was not fixed upon the Lord his service would have been very different But here's a man with integrity, whose eyes upon the Lord, who will serve his Lord and not be distracted by criticism, not be turned from the left to the right by criticism or the assessment of others. In fact, he says this, it hardly matters to me what you think about me. That's what he said. It's not significant. It's certainly not going to change me, nor my decision making, your criticism or assessment of me. You're going to explain why he says, in fact, not just you, any man here, he says. He says, it's a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. And that's when he says, I don't even, I don't even depend upon my own self-assessment. I can't trust it. Of course we can't. How can we be objective about ourselves? And so this idea of having your eye fixed upon the Lord is so important as the servants of our Lord Jesus Christ. To be frank, I don't serve you. And you don't serve me. We serve among each other. But we serve our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's to him we will give an account. Him. So he says in that context... This is my ambition. And he's saying, listen, whether I'm here or gone, it doesn't matter. Heaven or earth, now or then, doesn't matter. This is the ambition, the pleasure of the Lord Jesus Christ upon me. I think it's an amazing thing that that Paul thought that would actually be a possibility. That Paul is telling us it's possible to live here and the Lord Jesus Christ to look at you and me and to find pleasure in what he sees. We can hardly find pleasure in each other in looking at each other's service, but think about the Lord Jesus as he looks down. The possibility that we could bring pleasure to the heart of our Lord in our service for him. Paul's eye is not upon the prize, so to speak. Paul's eye is upon the Lord. You say, well... Why, Paul, are you so ambitious for that? Now he comes to his conjunction. If you're into grammar, it might be a coordinating conjunction. If you come to this um, conjunction here in verse number 10, he says, For, here's the explanation, here's the motivation, here's that which compels him, here's that that stokes his ambition. For we must all appear. Before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, this idea of appearing has the idea of being made manifest, laid bare, so to speak. Openly, Woost is this, openly shown as to our true character. I love Kenneth Woost's expanded translation, I'd heartily recommend it. And he's saying, we must all appear. That is, taking Moose expanded translation, we will be openly shown as to our true character before our Lord Jesus Christ in that coming day. All pretense gone. All hypocrisy gone. Everything at sham gone. Laid bare, manifest. Seen as we are, not as we would like to be seen. Standing before the judgment seat of Christ. Not to be assessed by angels or by saints. But that the true assessment of the value of our life upon earth made by he who has the right to make it. Our Lord Jesus. And he says this that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. The idea of receiving the things done in the body is the idea of recompense, to give back what is due. So the things that I do in my body, that is while I'm here, as I live and serve, the significance of those we've spoken about, the importance of those we've spoken about, there's coming a day when the things done in my body are going to receive a recompense. And he says it this way, whether good or bad. Now, he's not dealing with sin here. We've said that sin is gone. Sin has been dealt with sin where where there's no condemnation, there's no penal consequence to sin in our lives. Now, that's all been taken care of at the cross. That's all been done and dealt with. We stand free from the flesh. We stand in changed bodies or resurrected bodies, and we stand before Christ in that day, subject to his assessment, not not to be penalized for sin, but to be assessed for service. There's no purgatory teaching here. But rather this, the idea of the use of the word bad can be misleading. It really is the connotation of worthless. And what's the difference? Well, let me quote you. The idea is not that God will reward us for the good things we did and punish us for the bad stroke sinful things that we did. That's not the idea. The idea really is just this, that there are certain things done in the body that have no possibility of procuring eternal reward or gain and are therefore designated as worthless. We'll come to this more in the next session. But even the concept of that ought to be sobering. The next session, I'm going to speak about the bonfire of our vanities. And that's what he's speaking about. There there is perhaps so much of what I've done in life that has no significance or value for eternity. And that's a thought. Things which will last, things which are good, in character, as opposed to things which are worthless. Things which will receive a recompense of reward and things which will not because they do not bear that character. We will stand at the judgment seat of Christ and be subject to that assessment. You say, well, big deal, big deal. You probably wouldn't say that in such a crass way but the way that we live our lives is saying that very thing. Big deal. If we do not live in light of that, if we do not consider that as significant in our thinking, in our decision-making, in the character that we're seeking Christ to form in us, the person that we want to be, the godliness and holiness of our life, all of that, the, the sincerity and integrity that we should have as the servants of our Lord Jesus Christ, if we are not doing that in the anticipation of being assessed by him, we're basically saying, who cares? Who cares? Well, Paul cared. Because in verse 11, he says this, knowing that therefore, there's the connecting word again, on the basis that we're going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ without going back over the whole thing again, all that I've been saying, on the basis of that, knowing that this is how I live. He says, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, the terror of the Lord. Why is he using the expression, the terror? Why doesn't he say knowing the love of the Lord Jesus? Why doesn't he say knowing the grace, knowing the mercy, knowing the holiness of the Lord Jesus? He uses the word terror or the word fear. This was not something Paul took lightly. This was not something that Paul thought about flippantly. He says, this actually is spoken about and thought about by the apostle in the, in the context of fear. Fear. Now, fear is not always a bad thing. In fact, it's a God-given warning system to danger. Fear. In that way, if you're, fear, <laughs> feared, if you're afraid or, you know, you're standing near a precipice and you're afraid of heights, that fear's a good thing. It's going to stop you getting too close and falling over. Fear is a kind of inbuilt warning system to danger. However, we can fear the wrong things or fear the right things. When you speak about fear, often in the Bible, it's a good thing. It's a wholesome thing. It's a necessary thing. And it really is the fear of the Lord. That healthy respect that was so often taught as being a necessary thing for the Lord's people in our New Testament in particular. For example, in Acts 9 and verse 31, it says, Then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria and were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord. You see, they were living with conscious reverence for their God. They did not treat the Lord lightly. They did not treat him flippantly. They were aware that they were the servants, he was the master, and they lived accordingly. And when we think about this, we are going to give an account not to a fellow servant, not to just another person who's the same as us, but we're going to give an account to the Lord. That ought to cause us reverential fear. And he says, knowing therefore the fear of the Lord, he says, we persuade men. There are two views in this. And it could well be that he's speaking about his evangelistic endeavors. For example, Acts 18, verse 4, he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. Could be. Or Acts 28, when they had appointed him a day, there came to him unto many unto his lodgings, to whom he expounded and testified the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus, both out of the law of Moses and out of the prophets from morning till evening. Could be, I don't think it is, but it could be. It could be that his service was as an apostle and so he's motivated in service to discharge that service, which is all true and correct, I think. but I'm not sure in the context this is what he's referring to. Again, I'm back to Woost. He paraphrases it in this way. Paul was seeking to convince men of their sincerity and integrity. Galatians 1 and verse 10 has the same expression, for I am now seeking the favor of men or of God. The verb persuade is translated seeking favor in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. I think when you look at 2 Corinthians from the beginning to this point, Paul's integrity was under attack. And not just him, but what he taught because the two were linked. And Paul is going to establish before men his integrity and he'll speak about it more in the verses that follow. The things that motivated him, the reasons he taught what he taught. He'll later on speak about the love of Christ constraining him and so forth. And I think that would be the idea here in context. For example, in verse 11, he says this. He says, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God. And I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. He basically says this. God knows me. I am manifest to him. Completely open. He knows me. He knows my heart. He knows my integrity. And he says, I'm concerned that you too know that. For he says in verse twelve, to follow it down, he says, "We commend not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory in our behalf, that you may have somewhat to answer them which glory in appearance and not in heart." He says, "I want to establish my integrity in this context of the epistle, so that you might have something to answer them, the glory in appearance, and are dismissing Paul and his ministry because he was unimpressive to listen to and to look at." Many of us are glad that being impressive to listen to and to look at is not the defining aspect of your ministry. And Paul's saying, I want to, to establish the integrity of my ministry and my integrity in light of the judgment seat of Christ and in light of the attacks that are under amongst yourself. That's the bigger idea of the context, I think. But it doesn't remove the singular point that we're making here. And so he says in verse number 13. He says, whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God, or whether we sober, it is for your cause. He was being accused of being out of his mind, beside himself. The NLT translation, it seems we are crazy to you. Paul's passion in his service was being mocked He was being said to be mentally unstable. He was being classified as a religious nut. What kind of man risks his life to preach as he did to a riotous crowd who are seeking his life? He's lost his mind. That's what he's been accused of. You can't listen to the teaching and think that this man's authoritative as an apostle of Jesus Christ when he's doing that sort of thing. It's crazy. That's what he's been accused of. What kind of man goes back into the same town where he'd just been stoned and left for dead? What kind of man does that? He has off his head. And so he says here, he says, whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God, or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. He says, whatever I may look like, he says, I want you to understand my integrity here. It's for your blessing. And it's for the honour of the Lord I serve. And so, in this context, he's defending his integrity for that reason. And lastly, he comes down to verse 14 and 15 in this connection. Says this: "For the love of Christ constrains us." Paul's appreciation of the love of his Saviour. Paul's not out of his mind. Paul's compelled by the love of Christ. He's also motivated by his understanding of the gospel. His conclusion is just this that the death of Christ meant that he could not live unto himself. His life belonged to Christ. So you have this idea of an understanding of the gospel and its impact. You have this idea of an understanding of the love of Christ, but you also have this overarching idea that Paul is going to give an account one day. And to Paul, integrity mattered. It mattered in relation to his ministry among the saints and his gospel. For the man who presents Christ should be characterized with Christ-likeness. And so often the ministry of an individual has been undermined by the failures of that individual. Paul says, I have not lost my mind. Paul says, I'm one thing, sometimes sober with you. I appear to be crazy at other times, the decisions I'm making, but I want you to understand my integrity because I am living in anticipation of that day when I will give an account to the Lord himself. So here's the point. The point is integrity. And here's the challenge of this session. As you live and serve the the Lord Jesus here upon earth, Who do you look to, to please? There will come points in your service for the Lord, and I don't just mean public service like this, any service for the Lord. There will come points when you are faced with a decision. You don't need to be in service for the Lord long until you face this. And pleasing people as opposed to pleasing the Lord, will be a question that you need to answer. And that is where you can lose your integrity. It's a serious thing. Because all that is done with the aim of only pleasing people does not bear the character of that which is rewarded in that day. Integrity. You may not always agree with the decisions that people make in their service for the Lord, but then again, it's not your position to judge, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. In fact, your assessment is of little significance. Paul says, my eye is not upon you. My eye is upon a greater and more demanding and more significant assessment, which is the Lord himself. And that is where you have the point of integrity. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Let's just pray. Father, we bow again in thy presence in the name of the Lord Jesus we thank thee that it is in thy word a possibility that in our life here below, with all of its failure and weakness, that it is possible for us to please the Lord. What a thought that is. The one who we've come to love and serve. Help us, our Father, to keep our eye fixed upon him. We think of that day that will dawn. And perhaps soon, when we will render an account to him whom we serve. Help us, our Father, to seriously build that into our thoughts and decisions here upon earth. We're so thankful for the opportunity of pondering these verses for a short time. We ask thy blessing now and just pray thy blessing upon everyone here in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.